Well, it's eight days before Christmas. Are you excited? Now, if you're Filipino, you know this. And if you're not a Filipino, you might, might have heard this from your friends. In the Philippines, Christmas begins on the first day of September. <laughs> All right. Uh, not a lot, lot of Americans know this, but in the Philippines, that's our tradition. But here in America, we try to catch up. But we have Memorial Day, we have November 1 and 2, and then we have Thanksgiving. And then right after that, it's full blast of Christmas trees and Christmas lights and Christmas songs all over the, the United States, especially in the malls. We try to catch up. We like Christmas. In fact, we have our own family traditions. But, <clears throat> but you know that Christmas, the first Christmas was so much different. The first Christmas was shrouded in mystery. The first Christmas was celebrated in secrecy because it was steeped in scandal and stigma. In the eyes of any, of any Jew, Christmas was nothing but a scandal. Now, I think most of us, when we read the Christmas story from the Bible, from the English Bible, we read that and we kind of miss a lot of things when we read from the Gospels. We miss a lot of things because of two things. Number one, it's because the Bible does not explain the history and culture of the Bible. So when we read the story of Christmas, we just read the story of Mary and Joseph and they were you know, they went to Bethlehem and she got pregnant, she bare a son, and that's it. But we miss the cultural and historical significance of what's happening there. Uh, so much so that there are words that are lost in translations like covenant or betrothal or virgin or son of the most high God. It's not part of our vocabulary. You don't go to your neighbor and say, Are you betrothed? <laughs> You don't do that, right? You don't talk to him or her as, uh, with, with words like covenant and son of the most high God. These are not part of our vocabulary. And secondly, I think when we read the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, we kind of miss a lot of things because we don't read the story of Christmas in a much larger story. We don't see one big story of the Bible. We read just portions of the Bible. And that's why when we read the Christmas story, it's just so tiny by itself. We cannot understand the story by itself. And so we miss a lot of things. That's why I would say that many times our understanding of the Christmas story is incomplete. That's why our, our goal for the series for the whole month of December is to give us a clearer picture of Christmas. <clears throat> Excuse me as close as possible to the original Christmas story. Today, I want to talk to you about Christmas in the context of shame. Now, you might have heard this for the first, you might be hearing this for the first time, but I'm telling you, this is as close as possible to the first Christmas story. Let me start with this. Have you ever felt that following God is hard or difficult? Have you ever felt and realize that following God can cost you your sanity. Now, excuse me. I'm saying that because Joseph and Mary went through the same thing. Joseph and Mary had to give up a lot of things because of following God. I want you to imagine Joseph and Mary and their story and the consequences they had to accept because they saw themselves as part of a larger story. If there's anything in the sermon this morning, I'd like you to learn is this. Obedience could bring about shame, 
but shame can turn to joy the moment we understand that our story is part of God's big story. Let me say that once again. Obedience could bring about shame, but shame can turn to joy the moment we understand that our story is part of God's big story. Now, let me start with the story of first of Luke chapter 1. There was a couple, and their names were Zechariah and Elizabeth, not your ordinary neighbors, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a very religious man, and Elizabeth is also the same. But one of the things that's particular about this couple is that they were both old. Elizabeth was barren. She cannot bear children. When you start reading this, <clears throat> excuse me, when you start reading this, immediately your mind turns to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was old, Sarah was barren, and they won't have son. Zechariah and Elizabeth was in the same situation. They were both old. Uh, Elizabeth was past childbearing. They want to have a son. In fact, when you try to read Leviticus, sorry, uh, Luke chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 18, the story of Abraham and Sarah, you will find that you are reading parallel stories. And you can see patterns in the story. Say, for example, when, when the angel Gabriel met and visited Zechariah, he was inside the temple praying. You turn to Genesis 18 and you find Abraham visited by angels and he was by the Oaks of Mamre. The Oaks of Mamre was a religious symbol in the Old Testament. So they were both in the same situation. Uh, again, Abraham was old. He wants to have a child. Zechariah was old. He wants to have a son. The same thing. Abraham was old. Sarah was old. She was barren. Elizabeth was old and barren as well. They want to have children. So if you read them side by side, it's like you're reading another story, just like Abraham and Sarah. But what's interesting here is that both of them wanted to have a son. And then, it's not, it doesn't say that the same angel visited them, but an angel visited both of them. In Abraham's case, three came to visit him. In Zechariah, there's one. And, by, and this angel has a name. His name is Gabriel. And during this time, if you look, if you read Luke chapter 1, Gabriel went to visit Zechariah in the temple while he was praying. And he told him that he will have a son, even though he was already old. At first, Zechariah did not believe. He was saying, how can, how can this happen to me? I mean, I'm old. So it's, it's like an angel coming to visit Brother Edwin and Sister Ida and saying, you're going to have a son. It, it's kind of hard to believe. So, but Zechariah believed, although he was halfway. So, you know, there was, there was this story that he did not believe. So he was mute for, for nine months until Elizabeth uh, delivered a child. So the moment he received the news, he went home with flowers and chocolates. And you know what happened next? Use your imagination. <clears throat> the Bible said that Elizabeth got pregnant eventually. Now, here's the connection. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. Now, what's interesting here is in Luke chapter 1, it begins with the story of Elizabeth in her sixth month, in the third trimester. Let me read to you Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
when you begin reading this and you read in the sixth month, you have to connect the story with Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth got pregnant and it's now in their sixth month, third trimester. And now the same angel came to visit Mary, who is betrothed. Betrothed doesn't mean married. Betrothed simply means you're engaged. But in the ancient culture, they're already legally together. But they're not cons- consuming yet they're married. There was marriage. There was no consummation yet. What's interesting here is that the plan of God is unfolding in front of our eyes as you read the story. But here's one big problem. Mary is betrothed. She's not married. And then the angel will tell her something that will struck her. It says in verse 28, the angel said to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying. Have you had any experience with an angel coming to visit you and, and then greeting you with saying, You are highly favored. <laughs> You're graced by God. You're favored by God. And that you are troubled. Now, why is Mary troubled? She's troubled because she did not understand why she, of all people, are favored with God. And so it says, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, in this year of the Bible, angels do not just appear. In fact, in the Old Testament, there were only two appearances of angels with women. Usually, angels appear to men when God calls a prophet, a king, a warrior, or a judge, but not too much with women. There were only two instances, one with Abraham and Sarah, and the other one was with Hagar. And it was not repeated again until Mary. So the biggest question at this point in the story is, why Mary? Of all the women out there in Nazareth, of all the women out there, why Mary? And the Bible did not give us any answer, did not give us any rationale why it was Mary. It's the same probably with why Abraham or why Joseph or why Jacob or why Isaac or why Zechariah. Or it doesn't say. It just says Mary. Now, what apparently is clear is that Mary was greeted by the angel with, you have found favor with God. In other words, Mary also found grace with God. Why does Mary need grace? Just like any of us, we all need grace because nobody is worthy of God. We all need the grace of God. In fact, that's what the angel said, you have found favor with God. Because in the eyes of God, no one really is worthy. Not Zechariah, not Elizabeth, not even John the Baptist, whom Jesus said, the greatest of all the prophets. In fact, Mary, in, his, in her Magnificat, Luke chapter 1, verse 46 says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You see, just like, the, just like us, Mary too needed a Savior. She was part of a much bigger story. So the angel said, <clears throat> in verse 31, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. And we and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, I'm going to break this down for you because there's a lot going on in here. 
See, when, Ab- when Gabriel appeared to Joseph in a dream, that was our sermon last Sunday, it was just in a dream, he said that Jesus will be a son and he will have to name the son Jesus. And then there's another name also that was given, which is not really a name, but a sign, Emmanuel. But when this angel appeared to Mary, not in a dream, but in actuality, he gave him more specific things about Jesus Christ, about the Son. He said, this Son will be called Son of the Most High. Now, what is, what is this Son of the Most High? Is this is a fancy way of calling God, God, Son of the Most High. What is this Most High? Now, every time, if you read the, whole, the Old Testament, every time Most High is mentioned, it's always described whenever God is compared to other gods in the Old Testament. I don't want to get confused. I'm not saying that there are many gods. I'm saying that because it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> in, in the original language in Hebrew, there's the word for God, which is Elohim, which we think that it's God, God, Yahweh. But it's a generic word for God or gods, Elohim. Now, when the Bible teaches us, what the Bible teaches us is that there's only one God. All monotheist religion believe that there's only one God. Judaism believes there's one God. Most Islam believes there's one God. Christianity believes there, there's one God. But in the Hebrew Bible, there's one word that is used. It's Elohim. Before Moses, there was no concept of one God. People believed in many gods. That's why when you go to Egypt, there are so many gods that they worship. So when the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, they came out of slavery, they still believe in many gods. So when Moses introduced Yahweh to be the only God, they were like confused. Why is there, is there only one God? How, how is this? This is why in every Jewish prayer today, both in the morning and in the evening, they always begin the prayer with the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God, or Yahweh your God alone is God. There's only one God. That's why also in the Ten Commandments it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Because in Egypt there were lots of gods, multiple gods. And the Israelites had a hard time of detaching themselves from worshiping other gods. This is the reason why they worship idols, especially in the time of Moses, in the 40 years in the wilderness. So here's the question. The question is, where did these gods or God gods come from? Who are the gods? Who are these gods? Now, the, the book of Psalms gives us an answer. In Psalm chapter 82, verse 1, it will say this. God, this is capital G, God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, small g, he holds judgment. So if I'm going to put the original language here, it will say God, Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, another Elohim. What is this? What's happening here? Do you remember the opening scene in the book of Job? You know Job, right? This is the guy who was tested by God and he went through a lot of troubles. And then at the very end, all his children died, all his possessions were gone, and yet he passed the test. He barely passed the test. This guy. In the opening scene of Job, there was a divine council meeting. And there was this 
guy who came late and said, you know what? Job was faithful to you. He was telling God, Job was faithful to you because you're faithful to him. Try to take away all the blessings and he will curse you. That's the opening scene in the book of Job. They were talking about Job. And God permitted this guy, this part of the divine council, to test Job. The divine council is called God's. They are sons of gods. In fact, when you open Job chapter 1, verse 6, you will say that the meeting place, that the council, the one that is meeting with God, are called sons of God. Sons of God. Who are these sons of God? These are angels. Sons of God. <clears throat> it cannot be the Israelites because at this point in Job, there were no Israelites yet. These are angels. They're called sons of God. Now, what's interesting here is that they have, the sons of God were divine beings now in our uh, modern time we we tend to divide angels with you know the good angels and the, the bad angels and then some people pray the good angels and they don't like the the bad angels technically when we say bad angels we mean fallen angels or when we say fallen angels sometimes we mean demons all right so we're we're kind of in the binary between good angels and and fallen angels now, if you go a little bit further, in Psalm 82, verse 6 and 7, it will say this. God will be speaking to the sons of gods or the divine angels. He will say, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. God was speaking to the divine council, to the angels, and he was addressing them as sons of God. But he said, nevertheless, you, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, why is God talking to the angels like this? God was talking to the angels like this. The context of this was God was giving judgment to the angels who rebelled against God. And you find this in Genesis chapter 6, where the angels rebelled against God. But it doesn't mean that gods or the sons of God were real gods. It simply means that these sons of gods were divine beings, not like us. These were divine beings before they rebelled against God. And Yahweh is addressed to be the Most High. What that means is that Yahweh is the chairman of the board, of the council. He presides over the council. He's like Mike Johnson. He's the speaker of the house. God is like that. So whenever you read in the Bible, Most High, it refers to Yahweh. There's only one, Yahweh. This is the reason why also in every Jewish prayer, in every Jewish blessing, it always starts with Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Melech HaOlam means king of the whole world. Yahweh is king of the whole world. There's no other king, only Yahweh. If the sons of God are therefore angels, why is God saying that they will die like men? Because this group of angels rebelled against God, and as a consequence, Yahweh passed judgment to these fallen angels. They were exiled from heaven, and eventually, the second coming of Jesus, they will be brought to hell. Hell was a place that was designed specifically for them, not really for us, but in the first place, for them. But going back to Mary and Joseph, now we know there were sons of God or the most high term, but going back to Mary and Joseph, can you imagine Gabriel telling Mary that she will conceive a son who will be called son of the most high? Now I bet Mary 
does not understand the reference. Because Son of the Most High is not very known to people. Son of the Most High is well known in the spiritual realm. Why would I say that? If you were reading the Chronicle of Jesus, you know, his life, the first thing that happened to him is he went to the wilderness. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Right after fasting for 40 days, a figure appeared to him. This is not human being. This is, this is a spiritual being, a divine being. And this divine being said, if you are the son of God, or if you are the son of the Most High, do this, do that. What, what I'm saying is that this guy knows who Jesus is. This is the divine being. Every time you read the Gospels, every time Jesus encounters demon possession, the demon will speak back to Jesus and say, you are the son of God. You are the son of the most high God. Have mercy on us. What that means is that these divine beings, these fallen angels, know Jesus. But Mary does not. Mary does not have this familiarity with who the son of God is or who this son of the most high God is. And why? Because in Psalm 82, again, these fallen angels were former members of the council. They know who Jesus is. And I doubt if Mary really understood the implication of conceiving a son who will be called Son of the Most High God. And yet Gabriel told, told her that you will conceive a son and he will be called Son of the Most High God. Mary was not interested. What she is interested is why and how. In fact, her question was, how can I get pregnant since I'm a virgin? Her question was both logical and theological. Number one, you know, it's scientific. How can I get pregnant if I am betrothed? It means unmarried. If nobody touched me yet, how can I get pregnant? It's very logical. It's scientific. But it's also theological. What she's trying to ask is that how can this be the will of God if this pregnancy will result in scandal? Many of us will think, that if it's God's will, it's always good. Perfect. It's good for me. You know what's God's will for Mary? It's a disturbance. God wants Mary to get pregnant without a husband yet. And Mary's asking, how can this be? I'm a virgin. By implication, she's asking, how can this be the will of God if this pregnancy will result in scandal? Because you see, in the Torah, fornication or sex outside of marriage is punishable by death. And Mary was thinking about that. How can I get pregnant? And how can this be the will of God? If in the end, I will be stoned to death. This cannot be the will of God. So she was really asking Gabriel to explain how. How is this possible? You know, sometimes when we realize what God's will is in our lives and we don't like it, we try to negotiate with God. You start by negotiating with God and then we end up objecting, and then we end up begging. And sometimes when we know the will of God in our lives or for our lives, and we don't like it, we negotiate with God. Now, if you're still single, and if you will become single in the future, listen up. All right. Wisdom tells us that if it's God's will for you to marry, because I cannot say if God's will for you is to marry. There are some people who are celibate and who are designed to be celibate. But if it's God's will for you to marry, God's will for you is to marry someone with the same faith. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much. We have to preach this. God's will for you in general is to have someone with the same faith. Someone who you will journey to Christ-likeness. Someone who will not lead you to other faith. That is God's will for you. Amen, Kizia? Oh, I'm, just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That. Now, but sometimes, sometimes we don't like it. Sometimes we don't like, especially if we are already committed to a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And, and you say, God, he's, he's handsome. He's not a Christian, but he's handsome. I like him. Can, can you please do something about it? Or maybe she's pretty and she's kind. Lord, she's not drug addict. She's totally fine. She's not churchy. She doesn't go to church. But she's okay. I want to keep her. Can I please have her? You know, we try to negotiate with God, even though we know we know already that what God's will is. So we, we try to negotiate with God. And if you do that, you end up doing your will instead of God's will. And this is a sad part of reality. And as a consequence, God allows us to suffer the consequences of our mistakes for not following his will instead of our will. You see, Mary's situation was kind of opposite of this one. Mary's situation is that she knows the will of God. She knows that God wants her to get pregnant, but she also knows that getting pregnant will get her in trouble because she's not married. She knows that getting pregnant before marriage to the Israelites is scandalous. It's shameful. So her question was, how can that be? I'm a virgin. I think Mary's response was legit. I think Mary is just like any of us. On one hand, she understood that following God is costly. So she counted the cost. She picked up her cross. She denied herself and followed God. That was Mary. It was an act of faith. So when you read Matthew chapter 5, you know, obedience is taking form. Because in Matthew 5, it will say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mary was counting the cost. She knew that it's the righteous thing to do, to follow Christ, and yet it will be costly. It will cost her her life. If there's anything, I want to say this. Mary was willing to follow the will of God, even at the cost of her convenience. Many of us will not follow God if it's not convenient. Many of us, and I'm not taking this lightly, when we are, <clears throat> when we are having trouble, when we are getting tempted by the enemy, when we are struggling with our faith, it's easy to leave God behind. It's easy to, to find an alternative. But you see, Mary understood the cost of following Jesus. So at the cost of her convenience, she followed God. On the other hand, our case is different. See, when we came to faith, we came to faith, we're not persecuted. When we came to faith, there was no opposition. And maybe when we came to faith, it was more convenient for us. It was more convenient because Christianity is offering blessings and the church is warm. And in the church, there's coffee and donuts. Maybe, maybe. But following Jesus consistently, religiously, and faithfully will always result in opposition. I'm going to say this one, one more time. Following Jesus consistently, religiously, and faithfully will always result in opposition. The world will never understand why we believe what we believe. 
the world will always oppose what we claim about Jesus Christ. Listen to Apostle Paul. He will explain to you why we are bound to be opposed, why our faith is bound to be misunderstood. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. He said this, For Jews demands, demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The reason why our faith is bound to be misunderstood or opposed is because our faith is stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Now, last night I was watching documentaries about, there's this documentary that's going around in the streets of Tel Aviv and asking all the Jews why they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And every Jew would say, he's not Messiah because he died on the cross. Messiah cannot die on the cross. It's very logical. Their understanding of Messiah is a Messiah who doesn't die in the end, like Jason Bourne. A Messiah who is charismatic, who has military prowess, like maybe Mel Gibson in Braveheart. A Messiah who dies in the end is not Messiah at all. So to all the Jews, Jesus Christ is nothing but a failed project, a prophet wannabe, a Messiah wannabe. And why is he a stumbling block to the Jews? Because he claims to be the son of the Most High God. Remember the, the trial with Jesus in the high priest? The high priest was asking, are you the son of God? Tell us plainly, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, you have said so. That was his claim. And Jews will not ever accept. But why is it, why is it folly to the Gentiles? Because the Romans cannot accept this. See, Jesus could not be the son of God because Romans understood power. And power is always equated with violence. The most vicious, most extreme form of punishment was invented by the Romans, the cross, the execution of the cross. And Jesus was subjected to the cross. That means to the eyes of, in the eyes of the Romans, Jesus was a failure. It's not, it's not victory. Jesus was, in fact, a victim. He's not the son of God. And you know who's the son of God in the eyes of the Romans? The emperor. See, the emperor, 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 the emperor is called Divi Fili. Divi is divine, Fili son, son of the divine, or in other words, son of God. If you are a, a, a Christian in the first century, you have to choose between either the emperor or Jesus. There can only be one Lord, one master, one son of God. It's either Jesus or the emperor. And for the Romans, this is, this doesn't make sense. Jesus cannot be the son of God because he was crucified on the cross. And you can imagine this is a scandal because on the cross, there was a centurion. When Jesus died and everyone left, this centurion said, truly, this was the son of God. Can you imagine the scandal? Because this centurion, a Roman, a pagan, understood and realized who Jesus Christ is. Truly, this was the Son of God, Matthew 27, 54. And he saw something that no one else saw. What did he, what did he exactly see? See, from 12 noon up to 3 p.m., the Bible said there was darkness. Romans are very superstitious. The Roman emperors... Before they ascend to the throne, they must have a sign from heaven, 
a lightning, a cloud formation, the, the, the birds flying in one direction, all those things. And sometimes, in many times, eclipses are signs from heaven. So when there was eclipse from 12 noon up to 3 p.m., this Roman centurion knew Jesus was the Son of God. There was darkness because God did not approve the crucifixion of Jesus. To him, it was clear. Jesus was the Son of God. Divi feeling. Here's the thing. Satan in the wilderness knew that Jesus was the Son of God. The demons that Jesus would cast out would know that Jesus is the Son of God. This Roman centurion would know that Jesus is the Son of God. But Mary doesn't have the idea what Son of God really means. She doesn't have the sophistication to understand what Son of God really means. And yet I find her response very amazing. Look at her response, verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I think most of the time when, when people experience a tragedy, <clears throat> excuse me, and eventually, because there's no answer to the faith, there's no comfort, they leave the faith, and they could not understand. It's hard for people to remain strong. It's hard for people to trust in God when God seems to be quiet. And when tragedy strikes, we're like a boat in the middle of the storm. We don't know where to hang on. And so we start to doubt God's love. We start to doubt his wisdom if he knows what he's doing. We start to feel like God is withholding something good from us. And you can relate to this. If you lost a loved one, or if you lost a career, or if you lost something that's very dear to you, and you'd probably say, all my life I've been working with this, and I lost this. Where is God? Why did God allow this to happen to me? Where is God? What is he doing? And in your prayer, you say, God, I want to understand. And the biggest question is, why? Why God? Why did this happen to me? And it seems like when we pray that, our prayer seems to fall on deaf ears. It seems like there's really no, no one answering, no one who's going to respond on the other side. And so some people leave the faith. But some people, they try to weather the storm. They try to wrestle with their faith. I think what's happening here with Mary, when she was asking, how can this be because I'm a virgin? She was trying to wrestle with her faith. I know it's God's will for me to get pregnant, but it's going to end up in scandal. But I'm going to stay here. I'm going to wrestle with my faith. I don't know why, but I will trust the Lord because he knows better than I am. See, Mary knows the possible consequences. And just like us, we are interested in the question, why us? Why you? Why me? She wanted to understand why her. She wanted to understand why it's God's will for, for her to be pregnant with her husband. It's God's will for her to be put in a scandal. Like you and I, we wrestle with God. And yet Gabriel responded to her with this. Verse 35, it says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age 
has also conceived a son, and this the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, I, be, I bet Mary would have some idea of what overshadowing means, but, but I would think that she does not really fully understand what this means. But I think the final straw for her, the, the thing that really stuck was when Angel Gabriel told that her cousin Mary is already pregnant six months, third trimester. That means if she's pregnant, it would take no less than the miracle of God to make her pregnant. And if she can have the miracle of God, Mary can also have the miracle of God. If she will follow God, Elizabeth, why not Mary? If her pregnancy is from God, why not her? I bet Mary understood because she has read the Old Testament. She read the stories of Abraham and Sarah. She read the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah was barren at first. She read the story of Jacob and Rachel. Rachel was barren at first. She, she read the story of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. She heard how God has worked in the Old Testament in the lives of people to get pregnant. And one thing stuck with her. Nothing is impossible with God. Tamara was confident, not because she can weather the storm or she can hide from the scandal. I think Mary was confident because from that point on, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what her family will tell her. It doesn't matter what people in the community will say to her. It doesn't matter even if Joseph divorces her. What matters is she's following the will of God. And this is what most important to her. That's why her response is this. Luke chapter 1 verse 38. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Here's, here's the interesting thing. <clears throat> See, in the Exodus, there's the word slave. And we know that because Israelite, the Israelites were slaves for 400 years. And and why and what makes a slave a slave is that they were they were either occupied or they were enslaved against their will. A slave is a slave against their will. A servant is someone who voluntarily wants to serve. Mary saying, I am your servant. More technically, this is bond servant. What she's saying is, I am voluntarily serving you. In my own free will, because I believe in God's will. See, Mary was confident because it is God's will. Here's what I learned from history. Here's what I learned from this story, rather. You don't need to fully understand before you can decide to obey. See, Mary did not have to fully understand. She obeyed. You don't have to fully know the whole plan of God before you can obey. Mary didn't have to. All you have to know is that your story is part of God's big story. The Bible is not yet finished. The story has not yet ended. The story will end when Jesus comes back again. And we, our stories are part of God's big story. See. Here's the question, and here's probably the challenge to this sermon today. What are you going to do with your faith? Will you continue to live out your testimony, even if it costs you 
your sanity, even it costs you your convenience? Will you still live faithfully for God, even it will may result to shame or opposition or persecution? If you're trying to wrestle with this idea, you may wrestle with this idea. The saints in the first century wrestled with this idea when they were being fed to lions, when they were being bur- burned in the stakes. They were wrestling with this idea. And I really hope that we are, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, are not just enjoying Christianity because it's convenient for us. Time will come that our faith will not be convenient to us. Now, during the COVID time, two years ago, churches were closed. We were not, some churches are not able to meet because we are restrained from meeting. Some churches in Canada, some pastors were arrested because of holding services, persecution. My hope and my prayer is that when time comes, when we are faced with opposition and persecution, we will hold on to our faith. Even though it may not be convenient, but because we believe that this is God's will for us, we will do so. And so when you read this, I will be like Gabriel. I will be like the angel telling you, God has found favor in you. God will dwell in you, just like what Paul is saying, that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God will dwell in you. And everyone who sees you will see Jesus Christ. Your testimony will be powerful. Your life will mirror the life of Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying here is this. This is your time to shine. This is your time to show the world who you really are and what you believe. And if it's Mary, and Mary's response was, I'm your servant, let it be to me according to your will, will you also respond the same way? You see, here's what's interesting that I found out, that Mary and Jesus' response was the same. What did Mary say? Let it be to me according to your word. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. Whatever we encounter in life, if there are oppositions, if there will be persecutions, if there will be difficulties, stand firm and say, Lord, your will be done in my life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the reminder. Maybe sometimes we think that Christianity is easy. Christianity, in fact, is just about blessings and and all the good things. But when we face the reality that our faith is opposed, that our faith is sometimes challenged by the world, that maybe sometimes following you is not all cozy, that following you is difficult. Father, I pray that you will give us the stamina, the, the endurance, the courage to stand for you. I pray that, Father, that you will allow our hearts to be submissive to you, to look at ourselves as your bondservants. Not because we don't have a choice, but because we voluntarily want to serve you and we want to be part of your big story. I pray that you will bless us today. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.